0: Welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. This podcast is created by Notation Capital, a pre seed venture firm. We invest in amazing technical teams in New York at the infancy of an idea. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. This season is sponsored by our friends at Silicon Valley Bank, a member of the FDIC. SVB is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors with a dedicated practice for emerging managers. Learn more about Silicon Valley Bank services at SVB.com. Aaron Gershenberg is a founder of Silicon Valley Bank's fund of funds and direct investment group, SVB Capital, where he's invested in some of the most well respected VC firms in the world. Aaron joined SVB in 1999 and has been part of the venture capital industry since 1996. Under his leadership, SVB Capital has raised $3.3 billion in assets under management. Prior to joining SVB, Aaron oversaw the opening of First Corp's Northern California office, a venture leasing business focused on early stage companies. a quick overview of some of the things you've done in the past, and and maybe particularly as you were starting out your career before Silicon Valley
1: Bank. Absolutely. So I've been in the venture capital business since 1996. I opened an office for a Portland-based venture leasing firm called First Core that was one of Silicon Valley Bank's largest borrowers. And so I competed and partnered with Silicon Valley Bank for about three years. When I opened that office in San Francisco, just- What's venture leasing? Venture leasing is, well, and I didn't know what leasing was. I actually didn't know what the venture capital industry was when I joined them. But I was told because of my uh, ADD and, uh, and probably dyslexia that this is probably the right industry for me. Okay. <laughs> that uh, getting into the venture business any way that I could made sense. And venture leasing really was at that time... Going to folks when they raised their first money and convincing them that they should borrow money from me at exorbitant rates, and by that I mean 40%, 50% IRRs okay. for those who ran the numbers, uh, and convincing them that that money was far cheaper than using uh, venture. venture dollars, right. which they'd given up ownership for that they'd never get back. Got so it. it was saying, hey, let us finance those tables and chairs And use your dollars to hire people or, you know, hire PR firms or marketing or whatever you needed. That makes sense. And just get a little bit more runway so that That you get a higher valuation.
0: Would that be equivalent to something, a venture debt product today? It's similar.
1: It was more based around the, at that point, servers and computers and things that had some sort of residual value. Right. The way we approached it, which was different than the bank, because banks uh, have the deposits that are also a source of collateral. Now, That goes down over time, and people are always like, why are we borrowing money from you when you're using, you know, we're basically, you're lending us our money, but the, the reality is firms like Silicon Valley Bank actually do give you more runway. What the bank does with entrepreneurs is it assesses the risk that you'll be able to raise another round. Right. And so... Uh, With the right, with the right entrepreneurs, with the right business models and, 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 and focus with the right investors, one can manage that risk well. And the bank has done a phenomenal job doing that. And when I uh, uh, joined the bank back in April of 1999, people were very concerned about the business model of the bank. They thought it was one of the biggest shorts out there. And those shorts have lost a lot of money. Over the last number of years, Silicon Valley Bank has been public since uh, in 1986. Okay, got, so, it. got uh, it. Was founded in 1983 over a card game. Uh, with some folks who were very frustrated that the Wells Fargo's and the B of A's and other large banks weren't interested in engaging right. with entrepreneurs. They wanted to see three years of profitable operating history before they would invest the resources to open up accounts for businesses. Right. So SCB was started back in those days really to be a place you could have deposit accounts and accounts receivable financing. Today, the breadth of products and services competes with every bank on the planet. Right. Across different you know, you know so asset you
0: you spent three years in the um <clears throat> uh what do you say, venture leasing
1: business? That was venture leasing, right. first core.
0: Uh in the late nineties, mm-hmm. uh uh competing with Silicon Valley SVB, which you eventually joined. So how did right. they win you over?
1: Well, actually I liken it to being in a sailboat race. So I so I went to high school, college, graduate school on the East Coast and I and I learned how to race sailboats late in life in my, in my early 20s, relative to, I think, others who grew up, you know, kind of from the time they could walk, right. you know, sailing. But what I did know from sailboat racing was when you're at the back of the fleet and it's all the boats are rounding the marks, you can see what the lead boat is doing well and some of the things they could be doing better. And even though they're winning the race, you want to be on that that boat and contribute right. to that winning, right. winning strategy. And Silicon Valley Bank was clearly, other than venture capital firms, but uh, on the debt side was by far the best uh, boat rounding all the marks first. And I wanted to be on that boat. Yep. So I joined Greg Becker, who's our CEO, and working with uh, two other colleagues, a guy who subsequently left the bank, Jim Maynard and Doug Hamilton, who is still here, we we raised our first fund of funds and our first direct investment fund. And the, the history of that was back in 1995, our former chairman, Harry Kellogg, had come up with the idea of putting in $100,000 to firms where mm. we had relationships, wanted to deepen those relationships. And as we opened up offices around the country, uh, we would invest in those those firms as well. And that worked out extremely well for us uh, starting in 95. So when I joined the bank, we had a great track record, but funds were growing larger. And it, right. as you remember, $100, million, $100 billion flowed into the industry in 2000. Right. And that's because the returns were so phenomenal for the late 90s. And our track record was phenomenal as well. Those firms, as they grew from 100 million to 500 million, the minimum check size was five to 10 million dollars, not 100 to 200 thousand dollars. So we realized that we had to have a fund of funds in order to invest in these funds. Were the
0: were the were these initial investments uh, just personal investments? From the, this from was the, the bank's folks balance at the firm? sheet. This was off. Until okay, this we from came the bank. up
1: with the idea of raising a fund to funds and a direct investment fund, these were the bank's balance sheet. Got it. Um, could you
0: and, and what were some of the first firms that you that you ended up working or that you initially worked
1: with in Well, the 90s? one of the, the more interesting firms that we committed to is CrossPoint Ventures. Okay. And I remember back then, John Mumford said, we'll never see another billion-dollar IPO. And he had actually closed on a billion-dollar fund and wired back all the money and canceled all of the commitments that wow. his LPs had made at that time. Wow. So there were a lot of articles. Was uh, this was back in 2000. So there were a lot of articles that were written back then that talked about how the industry had evolved into an asset management industry right. where the motivation of the investors were management fees. And this seems. It seems you can find those articles in the 70s. You can find them in the 80s. You can find them in the 90s. You could find them in the 2000s, and you can find them today. Right. And so this is an industry that's constantly being written off, and it's constantly being described as everything that is material has been invented, and there hasn't been any real investable ideas, you know, in a long time. Right. Which can constantly is is being disproved. And from my own perspective, this, there's never been a more exciting time than today to be investing in the innovation economy.
0: What originally, when you joined SVB um, to formalize the fund investing business, um, what? Uh, how old were you at the time? Maybe in your 30s. So, what initially let's see. got you excited about? I was about born
1: doing? in 62. Uh, you know, I'm 55 today. So in two thousand, I was thirty-eight years old. What
0: uh, and what were the things that got you really excited about doing that business early on? So, were there, was there a concept of fund? There must have been fund to Yeah, back so then.
1: we there were not that well. I guess there were a number of fund to funds out there, and I just I knew that we had unique relationships. Mm. Uh, that we could, as, as, as driving right. value to the venture capital firms. From the inception, I knew that building relationships with limited partners was absolutely critical to the future success of SVB. And if you looked at that time, SVB had built a very, very unique relationship with both founders and CEOs, as well as general partners but had done nothing and didn't even understand LPs mm. and the basis for them making commitments and how they viewed the industry. Mm. And that is the source of the capital that drives the industry. Right. And so I, I just, I knew that if you think about the flow of capital, if we figured out a way to build a value proposition for LPs and kept SVB at the middle, non-competitive with GPs, non-competitive with founders and CEOs and right. CFOs, uh, and a unique value proposition to LPs, that would even that would strengthen the bank's position in the innovation economy even more.
0: How did you approach and think about and go about go about raising that first fund of funds?
1: So, that first fund of funds, one of the challenges was the regulatory environment. And there's a woman named Catherine No at the time, who was our general counsel, and she helped us navigate some very, very difficult waters around getting that particularly getting for that a job, bank for a bank got it so we found the regul we found the regulatory uh, you know approvals and, and got that got that set up and this was in 2000 before the dot com bubble burst right. before the telecom right. bubble burst Just thank god cuz we time. would have never gotten it raised if it had happened any uh, any later so it was early 2000 we really it. started it end of end of 99 and going into 2000 and so that that fundraising was really passing the hat with CEOs and uh, CFOs mm. and uh, other entrepreneurs who had known the bank and were very mm-hmm. very successful we had a strategic partnership with UOB out of Singapore they were an investor zora bank out of japan was an investor we had a a swiss a swiss hedge fund that was an investor rmf uh, that subsequently sold to partners group so we we really we really got lucky i would say um Which, which is something that repeats itself over the, over the cycles. We've had to reinvent ourselves many, many times. Yeah. And we've had to navigate some very, very challenging times along, along the way.
0: How, how big was the first fund of funds?
1: So the first fund of funds was $136 million and we reduced the fund to $122 million when the underlying funds reduced their fund sizes. A number of funds were raised and they felt that those funds were too big relative to the contraction that happened at the time of the dot-com bubble versus the telecom bubble. How verse. did you survive that? So those... As a fund of funds. As a particular. fund of funds, it's very interesting. The uh, There were some defaults. Right. And one of the first creative things we did was to the individuals who were getting hit with AMT tax issues, we said, rather than default and lose your capital that you've that you've contributed to the funds, why not donate this interest to Amherst College, Pepperdine University, University of Hawaii, mm. and get the benefit of that donation? Mm. And they'll step in your shoes. Well, that helped them greatly, and it helped us greatly, because that allowed us to pivot from an LP base that was largely individuals into an endowment and foundation LP base.
0: Wow, because you went to the endowments uh, and other folks and basically coordinated these uh uh, contributions to yes. wow, that's yes. amazing.
1: So that was a very, very first, really, uh, you know, I'd say good. I, I'm not sure it's a pivot, right? But creative solution, right. To a to a creative challenge,
0: right? Right. And so, uh, so first one was in 2000. Um, I assume there was a period where you were kind of where everybody was. Well, with, we were in the JPO significantly, right? But I,
1: I don't think we hit the worst of the J-curve when we raised our second okay. fund of funds. And our second fund of funds was anchored by the largest insurance company out of out of uh, Switzerland. And so that was called Winterthur, which has subsequently sold its portfolio to AXA, which operates really as, a, as another fund of funds. So with Winterthur coming in as an anchor and bringing in some family offices and some endowments and foundations, we were able to raise our second fund of funds. Yep. And then we continued down that path with our third fund of funds. And it was when we when it came time to raise our fourth fund of funds that we really ran into a challenge because all three of our first our first three fund of funds were in the J curve.
0: Mm. And
1: we were showing our funds to folks, and mm. like, why would we invest? And you guys, you guys have no track record. Right. Even so even on fund four. On fund four. Wow. We still didn't have a track record. So what we did, this is about oh six, oh seven, is we took the portfolios, the companies underlying, companies of all the funds that we'd committed to. And using Monte Carlo analysis, crystal ball, we did projections based on revenues, margins, growth Mm. rates on how those funds would likely perform. Mm. And that was the basis of the track record that that we Mm. used. Now, fund-to-funds are some of the most expensive capital out there. And I think that for many that are out raising funds, they think of fund-to-funds as, a, as an early source of capital, whereas I would think of fund of funds as really a later mm. source of capital because the cost of capital is so much higher. And the reason that is, is because there's another layer of fees. Mm. And some LPs won't have anything to do with fund of funds because they're very fee driven. They don't understand the value that a fund of funds brings forward. And clearly, a fund of funds has got to outperform because there's, that's the right. only way they can justify right. those additional fees.
0: So you're saying that for the average, VC or newer, you know, emerging manager, um, working with fund to funds is actually pretty difficult just because the, the, the return expectations have to be so much higher exactly. because they're taking fees as well. Exactly. Okay. Um, what gets you excited about certain managers or firms? And, um, I'd be curious to hear maybe how that evaluation has evolved as over sure. the last couple decades you you doing this.
1: So let me let me just describe how our how our fund has evolved in terms of sure. the construction and then then I think that'll also help me answer specifically the managers that I that I get excited about. When we when we first invested our first fund of funds it really was not analytically quantitatively driven it was who had the best names out there. And we we did some first time funds and some second time funds yeah. but had Names, as Luminaires. in the perception of hot companies. You, you would ask, okay, who are the best firms out there, right. and those were pretty much the funds on the front of everybody's right. you know, minds.
0: And that was Kleiner, Sequoia, folks like that. Exactly. Yeah. And so, benchmark. But right there lot. was more
1: like thirty funds, not fifteen. Right. Whereas ninety percent of our fund today is concentrated in fifteen names, mm. and what we are looking to deliver to RLPs, and I think we do an extremely good job of it. Is the right time, stage, sector, and geographic diversification. We, that's nowhere in our first PPM. Right. So, uh, in, in a concentrated portfolio, that is nowhere in our first PPM. These are things that we've learned and we've back tested. Right. And when we've looked at our portfolio, where, is fund, where has value been generated? It's been funds with, with concentrated portfolios themselves, with ownership positions in companies that have fund returning outcomes now there's a lot of investors who are comfortable with 2 to 3x net returns mm-hmm. and you know double digit so 10 to 20% net irrs mm-hmm. relative to what what they're getting mm-hmm. but our conviction has to be in the you know those funds that will generate 3x net returns and in those funds we typically see if they're investing in seed and series a 40 to 50% of the capital gets written off right in our own direct fund We believe between 35 and 40% of the capital will get written off. And another 20% of the capital will be a return of capital. Right. And so it's about 40% of the capital, which generates, you know, two to 3X. And that's again, another 30, 30%. It's only 10% which is really driving what gets you to 3X and potentially 5X and greater. Right. We've back tested this and looked at different funds as well. And so a lot of it defaults to those models that have that characteristic. And folks come in and say, oh, our loss rates are low. And we say, well, that's great, but we don't think that's sustainable through different environments. Right. But getting back to that, that portfolio construction, finding that right time, stage, sector, and geographic diversification, our fund of funds is 80% US, 20% rest of world. About 20% is in the life sciences. We like 60% of the, fir- the, you know, the, the first dollars into a company are in the Series A or earlier. And that's what creates, that's the risk-taking. Now, people say, isn't that risky, given that it takes these large outcomes to generate it? But if you have the right diversification with the right managers, it ends up being less risky. The other thing is brand matters in this business. And I don't think that's intuitive. I think that brand matters because it takes 10 years for a company to reach, usually. Now, there's exceptions to every rule. But generally, about 10 years, to become of scale and growth yep. uh, and biz, you know business stability to justify a billion dollar valuation in north of that. And, and you know, sometimes a couple more years or more to exit at those types of valuations. The, the board members, those that came in at the Series A and helped that company, those are real luminaries in our industry. Those are the, the GPs at the firms that we want to back. Because when they invest in a company, there's a line out the door, if not around the block, of investors who want to invest in that company. Mm -hmm. So you've de-risked future fundraising for that company. They've also demonstrated that they can help recruit. They can help recruit the talent. They know where to go. And that talent knows that if they're investing in that company, chances are that it's going to be a a good company. So it's easier to recruit. You're de-risking that. When it comes time to do business development deals, they know... Who the right people are to talk with at the right corporations right. to structure those deals, so you've de-risked your your uh, your business development. And then when it comes time to exit, they also know who either the right the right bankers are, or the right acquirers are, and how to yep. you know create the competition to get the highest valuations, uh, or taking a company company public. Yep. They know the right time and, and where to focus on the right things. And so there's a lot of reasons why success. Um, create success in our in our industry. That's yep. not to say that there aren't you know funds that uh, come on you know come on the scene and end up doing incredibly well.
0: So my my understanding is that typically uh, you're you're not investing in fund one fund twos. I mean you're investing in brands that are built that are you know three four five six seven. That's
1: the majority of our portfolio. Right. We try to add a name or two every okay portfolio. The okay. challenge at SVB is that we don't want to compete with anyone. We don't want to compete with the GPs. We don't want to uh, compete with um, with LPs. Right. You know, our private equity services group banks a huge number of fund-to-funds. We want to have a very unique value proposition. And we don't want the capital that we have to distort the industry as well. Right. And so we're trying to be more value-added to our GPs. We're trying to be an extension of our LP's team to drive more value to them. And so that's that's one of the unique aspects of what we do. As far as first-time funds, um, we've done Ashmeet Sindhana, mm-hmm. uh, who is engineering capital, who spun mm-hmm. out of foundation capital and is focused on the enterprise. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know... Uh, Is a sole GP fund thirty million dollars? We've done Tim Connors, who was at Sequoia and at USVP, and did GuideWire there. Fund returning outcome for them and runs Pivot uh, North. Pivot North, exactly. Uh, Just you know, an incredible uh, mind. Uh, We've done the first fund at Felicis, which has been a tremendous success. And Aiden is building a very very nice team and 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 arguably, a you know one of the you know excellent opportunities to be one of the top 10 names, yeah. if not already, in terms yeah. of how. But he's evolved. You know, his first funds would have 80, 90 companies, right. and he's concentrating his strategy. And so this is something where everybody lear- learns and, and evolves right. along the way. Right. And one of the, the more successful funds we've invested in is Ribbit Capital with Mickey Malkin, the fintech space, which makes sense as, a, as an organization like ours. Yep. That's something that we know well. Yep. And, and, uh, and Mickey's done an incredible job there. So we have backed... First-time funds, and it's worked out very well for us.
0: Often, it sounds like those are their first-time funds, but generally speaking, managers you know pretty well, maybe worked with in the past, or no, or maybe some of those folks just walked
1: in and you were. I would say know. it's more it's 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 a lot of gut because right. you don't have the ability to analyze track records. But right. for us, it, you know, looking at those managers, looking at something in their background which is on strategy. Mm-hmm. So the the area that they're looking to raise the fund around, which when you look at their fund construction model in terms of ownership and dollars in, something they've done is their past either as a founder or as an investor that would be a fund-returning outcome. So if someone has something that's you know returns $50 million and they want to go out and raise $100 million, that just doesn't fit with right. how we see the industry. And we do see uh, first- and second-time funds raising far more capital than they should, and others who've had early success who aren't driven by the desire, I would say, because there's a way that you get sucked into, well, in order to be taken seriously, we have to have a $200 million fund, or a $300 million fund, or a $500 million fund. And I think that that is something that doesn't serve them or their investors or the industry well by raising more capital than being able to generate those three, five, 10x funds.
0: It's interesting about a couple of the the firms that you just mentioned is they are small, you know, $30, $35 million funds, and they are solo GPs, um, which in some ways goes against some conventional wisdom Well, I'll tell
1: around. you, we were early there in backing, you know, solo GPs. and right. There were, uh, you know, many in our industry that you know, conventional wisdom was that that's too risky because you fall in love with your companies and you put too much right. good money after bad. Right. And that's really something we do focus on, which is, do are they good at knowing hmm. when and how to not put good money after bad? And we've yep. seen the best firms make this mistake, right. which is right. falling in love with something and just continuing on with it far beyond where they should have.
0: What's the biggest change in the industry, more broadly, when you think about you know today compared to when you first started in the business? And um, I'd also, as a follow-up to that, just be curious to hear your thoughts on some of the new emerging venture models, the sure. angel lists and sure. the scout funds, and some of these other you know more creative new
1: structures. Sure. So for me, the breadth of opportunity is far greater today than it ever was before. The pace of innovation is far greater. The disruption is far greater. The understanding of our industry and being an entrepreneur and and how it's been popularized with Silicon Valley, the TV show, and Shark Tank, and all of the the hacks and all of the business plan competitions is phenomenal. And so you just know, if you've been in the business for a while, the best is yet to come. Mm. You don't know when. And I love the way Singularity University talks about exponential thinking. That us as humans, we think in linear terms. We think about how many steps it takes, you know, to get to the kitchen, you know, and let's call it 30 steps. But 30 exponential steps are going around the planet 27 times. So we just can't wrap our heads around where we are on that exponential curve and the peaks and valleys that we're going to hit along that path, right? So what we tell our investors, is that you have to build into a venture position over eight to ten years, and you have to have the fortitude mm. to stick with it, not trying to time it, not saying now's the, the right time to lean in or the wrong time, but build into that position. Mm. And so that's really where we look to help our investors, and then you know coach them on rifle shots that they would take along the way. As far as the different different models that have uh, that that come along. I think it's good that there's uh, there's capital available for seed investing, and I think that that's something that's that's healthy for the industry. I think that when it comes time to scale to scale companies, you're going to need the Series A investors right. that are going to be on the board that are going to help when you, as a as a founder or as a CEO, are going to try to recruit the right teams or help a company pivot. Um, I, d- I just I don't think that that th- there's exceptions to every rule. No question about it. So I don't see the brand name firms going away, and I do see, you know, some of those being disrupted. Um, it seems
0: as though the the let's say the top ten, you know, branded firms in the industry. It seems as though that list is actually changing more rapidly than it yeah. did in the past. Yeah, I would so, say so. You know, in the '70s and '80s and '90s, it was generally the same small list of firms. Now you have firms like, you know, Andreessen and First Round and Social Capital and a bunch of others that didn't even exist 10 years ago right. and are, you know, at least for founders, considered, you know, top-tier firms. Sure. Um, how do you think about that, uh, that evolution? And do you, in fact, think that, um, you know, maybe building a top-tier firm, you can do that quicker than maybe you could 10, 20 30 years ago so
1: that's a that's a that's a challenging question because when I got into the business there were probably 40, 40 right. firms Total. that yeah. were on people's shortlist right and it really wasn't as concentrated as it is today right and so funds like Sequoia and benchmark and Excel, which have had incredible funds, you know, 15, 20x funds in recent memory, not, you know, back in the 90s. Those those other funds, when you go to a larger list back in the 90s, had, you know, 20, 30x funds. They were smaller funds, but Mm -hmm. they had just incredible outcomes, you know. In those days,
0: as in funds that were off, like maybe thirty, number thirty on the list, or yeah, twenty on exactly. the list, had Just amazing, the,
1: They right. had incredible, incredible right. returns. And then too much capital came into the industry; it drove the cost of capital down to yep. the point where it was almost negative. And you see this where firms are almost penalized for not being active. And how come you don't have a bet in the sharing economy? How come you don't have a bet in the, uh, you know, in the in the drone space or in the you know, the VR space. Uh, so there there ends up at points where there's just so much capital mm. trying to get into the industry. Mm. So one of the biggest challenges, I think, as an industry today is some of the really large funds, uh, LPs, who want to invest directly. And so they're driving up valuations. And then you have the crossover investors, the public, you know, the Fidelis right. and the Vanguards and the t roads and others. Yeah. Who are trying to have ownership because they can't buy that ownership once the company is public, and so in a way it's good because it allows these companies to operate privately longer and, and continue to solidify, you know, their their uh, their pre- the predictiveness predictability of their profitability and their revenues. Um, so there's you know there's trade-offs there, and one of the more the newer newer uh, elements is just how much corporations. Are focused on the innovation economy and how right. many new corporate uh, venture funds are being formed and how they are investing in funds as well. So, all of this capital is one of the things that worries one because that has historically, if it drives the cost of capital down too low, returns suffer. And, you know, but the upside is that the diversity of opportunity continues to grow and corporations are more and more acquisitive and will only get more and more acquisitive. So, so do you think that in both in, in both the right. departments? So do you think that's areas? why
0: that's what enables these newer firms to maybe pop up just because the opportunity is maybe greater than it was ten or twenty years ago, or at least that maybe the opportunity is more well understood. Like what what allows uh, you know a firm like I don't know why I'm picking, you know picking social capital, but sure. you know a firm like that to very quickly ramp up and be considered maybe a you know, a very good firm. Um, you know, what what shortens that cycle? Maybe today that 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 didn't exist ten years ago.
1: I think that when you look at a fund like Social Capital, and I've seen this with Joe Lonsdale and to right. a degree Mickey Malka and and others, who in in the area that they're focused on have become luminaries. And so Chamath. You know, with his with his Facebook network and the amount mm. of capital that he was putting up personally for a lot of LPs and myself included, it's all about figuring out do you have the right alignment of interest with right. your investors and have you sorted out all the conflicts mm. of interest? And from our inception here at SVB, that's been the first question we get: like, how do you operate an equity uh, operation within a bank? One is very, you know, risk adverse. The right. bank and one it's all about taking risk and how do you mash those cultures right. and how do you share information and how do you guard against conflicts of interest right so when i look at someone like chamath then what he did at social you know he's putting up a lot of his own capital right. and you know the the question for chamath is how much of the decisions he's making is a social agenda that he may be pursuing or some investments that he's taking that you as an LP may say, well, that's great. I want to support this. I want to support that. And, and, and I'm, I'm not, you know, so I think I'll make the overall right decisions in terms of returns versus others who are just like, look at I want my investors to be so hungry and have so much skin in the game and only driven to generating financial right. returns. And every every LP will have a different blend of what their own personal, both risk return and also, uh, you know, strategic or social Versus financial return objectives are right, and for folks who are raising money, that's what is really important: is to understand who you're approaching for money, and is there an alignment of interest right. around that? You talked about uh, backing, you know, committing to firms
0: over very long periods of time, and not, you know, uh, making changes based on where we are or where one thinks we are in the cycle. Um, but how do you? I'm sure there's been examples of, uh, you deciding to no longer back, uh, a fund manager that maybe you've worked with for, let's say, you know, 10 plus years. How do you make the decision and how do you, how do you like tactically approach having that conversation?
1: Right. Well, I think this is, this is a very good thing for folks who are out raising money, both as entrepreneurs, both as GPs going out to raise funds, which is understanding that you're, potentially entering into a 15-20 year relationship. Right. And you know, if you're going to if you're going to create a billion dollar company, you're going to be working with your investors for that period of time. And if you're raising a fund, you certainly if you're successful will be in the business for 20-30 years and and hopefully with the right. same limited partners as well. Right. We think about it that way. We think about when we make a commitment to a fund, it's a minimum of a 3-year a 3 fund commitment before wow. you really know whether they are executing on that first fund. Now there's been funds, which we haven't supported after Fund 1. And that's been a sector that they were uh, addressing that it became very, very obvious that that was one where the, 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 the profile of the market opportunity wasn't significant. Mm. So we invested in a fund that was really focused on the, the, the water space. Mm. And w- the early indications were that it, uh, even though it's a market that's much larger than technology, the return profile was very, very different, mm. and I'm, it's done very well in terms of raising capital. Hmm. In terms of returns, uh, you know, the, based on those early returns, it didn't look like it was it was going to measure up to what right. our needs are. Right. Uh, the clean tech industry was another that, on the front end, looked phenomenal, but it's been really hard. Now right. it doesn't mean that the clean tech sector isn't one where money can be made, and one shouldn't be investing, especially. For social, uh, social right. reasons, uh, strategic reasons, but it ended up being one which we we really de-emphasized mm. Mm. because of some early experience. There's been team changes. There have been some of those where you, you know you go in and you expect, and all of a sudden they're doing something very different. Right, and it, it's like, why are you opening up a West Coast presence when you know we invested in you for a different set of exposure, right. and we right. have plenty of Exposure on the West Coast. So, why you know why are you doing that? So,
0: for the most part, though, if you know uh, you still believe in the market and the strategy, and it's a similar team, uh, even if maybe the early indications of returns aren't quite where you'd expect them to be, you'll typically uh, support and back up the team.
1: Absolutely, there there has to be some reason why we lose our conviction that Mm -hmm. a fund is not tracking to 3x net returns. Right. And we have lots of funds that didn't hit that, uh, if even, you know, don't look like they'll return capital, where we supported them in future funds. And so as long as they were doing what they said they were going to do and the fund that they're raising, we believe in that strategy.
0: Um, How, we've we've asked this to a few of the folks on the the show, Um, how important do you think, or maybe not at all, for founders to understand the dynamics or maybe the pressures on the VCs that you're working that they're working with from from the LP community like you know as the LP community does become a little more transparent in previous years and future years are there specific things that founders should know and should learn from that
1: I think absolutely and yeah. I think that if you're a founder and you're looking at making a decision between two VCs Asked to speak to one or two of their anchor investors. Wow! Right. And why have they? Why did they pick this firm versus others? And what are the things that they know about that firm that had them right. invest? And, right. and what's their what's their track record? Because it tells you a lot. Smart. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's one. Obviously, it's important to talk to uh, other board members that this firm, this right. fund, or GP has sat on, and uh, other other founder CEOs, but. I would talk to some of the anchor LP's of the funds. That- have you heard
0: of founders doing that? I think it's a, I think it's a really interesting idea. Um I'm I'm curious to hear if you've actually heard of uh founders going out and doing it. Maybe Let me we put it encourage- this way. Yeah.
1: I haven't ever gotten a call from one of the founders of of one of the funds. Right. That we are we're uh, talking to, but I I have had GPs ask me to be supportive with uh, because of the the bank has got a relationship, or I have a relationship with that founder. Right. But right. I haven't. I have not been. Um, I haven't had a GP say, "Hey, listen, I'm going to have this founder who's asked to right. speak to one of my LPs right. to speak to you." It's an interesting idea, though. So,
0: two more questions. Uh, sure. I'd I'd um I'd love to hear, you know, uh, presumably a lot of the funds that you're investing in are, you know very well-known funds, are oversubscribed. Like, How do you position yourselves in Silicon Valley Bank as a differentiated fund of funds compared sure. to some of the others in the market?
1: So, so one thing, we're very fortunate to have a blue-chip list, list of LPs and well-diversified across public and private pension funds, insurance companies, endowments and foundations, family offices. And so we're a trusted partner. They know that one of the one of the most important things in being a limited partner is the confidentiality with which you treat hmm. the information that you get from the GPs, and there's a lot of concern about some LPs who use that information to trade for their own account, or use that information to go and directly contact the CEO of a right. of a company and say, "Hey, can we invest or lead your next round?" Right. So those are all non-starters for us. We have to absolutely work as a, as a partner to the, to the GPs and be an extension of our LPs uh, teams and find ways without compromising any of the information that we have, uh, help GPs do a better job, provide them with insights that allow them to be more successful, but without uh, compromising the integrity of any of the information that we're getting from any of the investors. And I think the reason that both uh, companies and funds are comfortable with SVB is because we have a private bank that works with them. We have the, we bank the funds, we bank them individually, and we are known as being extremely creative and entrepreneurial and being the best possible partner that we can, because it's a relationship business. And if you bring forward the mentality of trying to figure out how you can be helpful, how you can allow them to be more successful, the, the industry to be more successful, we SVB and we SVB Capital will be more successful over the long term as well.
0: Uh, I guess we'll end there. That's a good place to end. I really appreciate you taking the time. And, um, and I think our audience will too. Um, really appreciate Aaron.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks.
2: This podcast was created by Nick Charles and Alex Lines, partners at Notation Capital. Notation is a pre-seed venture capital firm. We invest in amazing technical teams in New York at the infancy of an idea. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. We'd like to thank Silicon Valley Bank for sponsoring season two of Origins. At SVB, the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors, its experts help innovators, enterprises, and investors move their bold ideas forward. Tap into the experience and connections of the Silicon Valley Bank team for advice on strategic, operational, and tactical issues and limited partner insights. Silicon Valley Bank is a member of the FDIC. If you liked this episode, please share and remember to tag it with hashtag OpenLP. We'd also like to thank Ben Glawe, who is our amazing audio engineer. You should work with him. You can find Ben on Twitter at visible underscore sound.